This is Brian Panish from the legal podcast, Get in the Game. Hope you like what you're hearing. And remember, sharing is caring. Subscribe if you like it. Share with others. But don't forget, get in the game. Hello and welcome, everybody. Today we're being joined by Warren Papusian of the firm of Baradat and Papusian from Fresno, California. Warren is a graduate of Fresno State University, San Joaquin College of Law. He's been named the Calabota Trial Lawyer of the Year, Consumer Attorneys Trial Lawyer of the Year. He's a member of the American College, and he's an all-around top-flight trial lawyer that we're great and lucky to have here today. Warren, welcome. How you doing? I'm Thank doing you. good, man. Thanks for joining us here, coming all the way from Fresno. First, what is it that stirred you and made you want to be a lawyer? Well, I always uh, liked the competitive nature. I played sports, and I found that being a trial lawyer was about as close to athletics as I can get in a professional basis. Plus, I, I just like helping people, and um, I think the two combined is what got me into practicing law. Well, Warren, you, you mentioned that you were an athlete. Is it true that you were the second fastest Armenian <laughs> on earth? Or is there is it Randy Parnigian? Is he the yeah. fastest Armenian? You're number two? Well, I don't know. They say Randy was the fastest. He ran the 100-yard dash in 9.9. But, but yeah, he, he, uh, he is probably the fastest Armenian that I've ever met next to me. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about <laughs> your cases. First of all, you got out of law school, you went to the district attorney. What, why did you do that? How do you think that helped you in your plan and your career? Well, I think uh, back when I was practicing law, it was almost like a prerequisite to go to the DA's office if you want a trial experience. So for me, the best way to get the trial experience uh, was to go to the DA's office. Plus, I just, I like criminal law and I, I like the aspect of trying you know, these big time criminal cases. I, fortunately, I never got to try a lot of big time criminal cases, but I really, I really learned a lot by picking juries because you're trying one or two cases at least a month. So you're always in that courtroom trying cases and more importantly, picking a jury. Well, some young lawyers I've talked to and they, they want to get into civil like you and they want to be a plaintiff lawyer or a, a trial lawyer. And they say, well, you know, criminal law is completely different. I don't really want to start out there. I say the trial experience and being in court is what is what you gain from there, whether it be civil or criminal. What do you think about that? Oh, most definitely. I mean, the experience you get from handling a, a judge in a courtroom or the judge handling you, dealing with witnesses, putting witnesses on, just put, orchestrating the whole trial and then picking the jury and then being able to speak to the jury and tell your story, I don't think there's anything more invaluable than trying to go to the DA's office. Most people don't want to do it. They want to come out of law school, make the big bucks. But I think at the end, you're going to get the big bucks if you're a little patient and you go to the DA's office. I mean, it's kind of like an apprenticeship. And if you want to be a big trial lawyer, you're not going to make a lot of money in the beginning. But all that experience in the end, hopefully you'll be able to catch your mind. Right. I mean, I don't think you can come out of law school now and try four or five cases right off the bat. Uh, you, you used to be able to do that maybe 30, 40 years ago in a civil practice, but now you'd be lucky to get one trial a year. And if you've been practicing 20 years, you'd be lucky to get 10 trials when you can get 10 trials in two years at the DA's office. So you, so you leave the DA, then you go work for an insurance defense firm. Right. How did that help you develop as a trial lawyer in the practice that you're in today? Well, working in insurance defense helped me see the other side. 
working with uh, insurance companies gave me a glimpse, actually gave me a pretty good view of how they think and how they operate and what scares them and what doesn't scare them. And I learned one thing. They're only scared of trial lawyers, true trial lawyers that try cases because uh, they would always ask me when I was doing insurance defense, this guy, you know, Mr. Jones on the pleadings, is he going to try the case or will he settle? And so I've learned that, that they factor that into their evaluation of the case. And how, how many years did you do that representing a defendant? I did that for just under 10 years. So you had the DA experience, you had this, the civil uh, insurance defense background. What was it that led you to go out on your own and, and become a plaintiff? I, I just wasn't a very good insurance defense lawyer. I just, I didn't have my heart into it. I didn't like the timesheet aspect of it. I just, after I either won a case or handled a case to a good resolution for the insurance company, it just wasn't the same. And all along, I'd have 10 or 15 plaintiff's cases that I would try to do. You know, they didn't like it back then when you handled plaintiff's cases. The insurance company, if they found out, you can get into trouble. So anyway, at the end of the day, I made a decision that no matter what, economically, I was going to start doing plaintiff's work. And I did that in 2000. And Excuse yeah. me. Uh, yeah, 2000. So it's been almost 20 years. Yeah. That I your 20th year of your own firm. Now. Yeah, that I completely broke away from insurance defense. Now, certainly I had the experience, and I'm sure many had. But you think you're going to do good, but you really don't know. What was that feeling like when you're opening your own firm, you're responsible for getting the cases, for settling them, for paying all the overhead. What was that like and how did you feel? Well, it was major stress, but I was doing what I liked. And I just figured, somebody told me once, if you treat your clients like you treat family, you're going to do okay. And I just knew that at the end of the day, um, I'd be okay. But it is scary because you're opening up a firm. I had an associate that I hired. I had another partner that we worked on, and it was uh, it's pretty scary. But, you know, the way I, I think I broke into it is I got a good result on a wrongful death in a very conservative community, and that helped perpetuate work. Okay, well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, you know, our listeners are around the country. You're from Fresno, which is in what's called the San Joaquin Valley primarily an agriculture area, certainly the agriculture hotbed in the state of California, probably in the country. And majority of the people would be more conservative, right? more Republican. You're representing plaintiffs trying to get money. What was that like? What is that like to you know deal with a conservative a jury? I, I, uh, people ask me to describe, describe Fresno. Fresno, uh, the state of California is a blue state but Fresno is a red community. It's, it's primarily conservative, a lot of farming, a lot of business owners, a lot of mom and pop type stores. Uh, the values are different. Uh, economic values are different than San Francisco and LA. So conservative viewpoint, housing's less. So when they give awards, they're very, very conservative. So you got to pick and choose the right cases to try. Um, you can get good verdicts in Fresno, uh, but you got to have the right set of facts. Well, but historically, verdicts have not been as large in Fresno as they have across the country or across the state. Right. But you and your experience have had, you know, many of the largest verdicts in Fresno. So I would like to talk a little bit about some of them. And the one, of course, that I, I is your all-time landmark, I would say, <laughs> would be your case with Stacey Johnson Klein, the Fresno State women's basketball coach, 
who was wrongfully terminated. And before we get into that, what are the types of cases that your firm handles? We primarily handle uh, catastrophic plaintiff personal injury cases, anywhere from um, products liability, auto accidents to medical malpractice. But we do employment cases also and a fair share of medical malpractice. Well, in your career, some of your largest verdicts have been in employment cases where there's a loss of income, but the damages primarily are emotional distress. And most of the people, they're not treating with psychiatrists. Right. They're not going to, you know, keep taking medication as a result of their termination. How? So let's talk about that. Do you think that employment cases are better with conservative jurors? What is your view on that? Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I, I agree that when I'm picking a jury involving an employment case, I feel like I've got the edge because the jury is comprised of people that might primarily are, are worker bees. I mean, they're out there hardworking people trying to make a living and they can relate to somebody that's being fired. Suppose to an auto accident, somebody runs a stop sign. Oh, everybody's run a stop sign and oh, I feel bad for both parties. And so you don't get that um, emotional charge. Employment, it's an intentional act, right? The employer is intending to fire somebody. So juries view it differently, I think. And I think that, that if the employer uh, doesn't treat that employee, that gives you that intentional element that you don't get in the PI cases. So Stacy Johnson client, she was the Fresno State basketball coach, was terminated. You ended up getting the largest verdict of a 16 or 19, excuse me, 19.1 million. And I think in about two hours after about a six or seven week trial. Tell us about the case. Set the stage for us. So the 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 Stacy Johnson Klein was a um, gal from Oklahoma. She's an assistant coach. They brought her over. She was um, flashy to say the least. She wore stiletto. She's attractive. Very tall, attractive. And she showed it with her dress. Yeah, she would wear the leopard skin type of a top, and she'd wear stiletto pumps, and she was had blonde hair, and she's like six one, and. Uh, had a great figure and was a huge presence at the gym uh, during the games. And she generated a lot of uh, publicity and a lot of fan base and actually was winning. So her and teams were doing well. Teams were doing well. She's in her second year and uh, they, uh, Fraser is a little bit of a diva. Some of her players didn't really like her. And so um, she ended up taking some Vicodin from a student athlete um, uh that had a knee surgery for her shoulder. She had a surgery and they found out and they fired her. My pr uh, premise to the whole thing was they fired her because months before she had complained about title nine issues. And for Tell us about title nine. Title nine is where they've got to basically uh, treat women athletes, all women going, whether you're taking English or playing basketball, uh, same as the men and vice versa. So, so gender equity. Gender equity. And so if you're spending uh, $5,000 a month in advertising for men's basketball, you should have some money allocated to women's basketball, traveling expenses. It kind of, it's just parody. And, and, and she wasn't getting and it. And for the backdrop, though, Fresno State in the past historically had had issues with Title IX type situations. And in fact, I believe the federal government had investigated and, and issued some findings that were not favorable for the school. That's correct. They, 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 
they had a litany of items that the university had to comply with and they weren't complying with it. And they were having trouble complying with it under the old administration, not the current administration. The current administration is completely different, but the previous administration, in my opinion, was not complying with it. Anyway, they, they, uh, they brought Stacy up on these Vicodin charges and uh, saying that she was endangering the health welfare of the student athlete. Um, they ended up publicly terminating her. It was a press release, press conference by the then president of the university and uh, basically humiliated her and fired her. And then um, I turned around and uh, sued her. Now, as you remember, Brian, I originally didn't want to take the case and you were the one that uh, now that we are on air, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, since we both went to Fresno state, so well, I, certainly, take, I certainly couldn't handle a case. Yeah, my, yeah, right. But I could. Huh? We both <laughs> we both went to Fresno State, so he talked me into taking it against our university. Uh, well, or it was least, the right thing to do, and I told you at the time it was the right thing to do. And win or lose, yeah. people were going to remember that you're the one that stood up. And yeah. I think it's paid benefits. But let's talk about the trial. First of all, how much was she making a year? Uh, she was making $250,000 a year, excluding bonuses. And what type of contract? How many year contracts? She, she had a uh, five-year contract with incentives, base pay of two fifty, and um, And so there was a pretty good economic component to the case because at the end of the day, she was 36 years old at the time they fired her. So um, originally, I would have settled for the terms of the contract, but it, that didn't work out. We had to, The trial actually lasted about almost 10 weeks wow. and uh, so let's talk about the trial what do you think were the the key parts of the trial my experience in these employment cases it's really the plaintiff i mean you're, you're going to be cross-examining the, the witnesses and the other side you'll call them i assume but if the jury doesn't like the plaintiff they're not going to help the plaintiff out. i knew from her depot being well representing her for almost two and a half years we took 50 depositions in the case and I knew when uh, that Noah's going to touch her. She's she's pretty good on the stand, and uh, she did very good on the stand. But I think also other coaches came in and testified. Even though they all didn't get along, they all had the common theme story of, of problems and getting gender equity in the athletic department going. And so I think that was the big part of it when uh, the associate athletic director Diane Milutinovich came in and testified. And I also believe Lindy Vivas came and testified. Well, wasn't and, that both Miss Vivas, I think it was the basketball coach. Volleyball. Volleyball. And then yeah, Margie. Sorry. That's and, right. And uh, Diane was, Miltonovich was in the athletic department and uh, working. And didn't they both have their own cases? They did. But just ironically had been settled. Or, excuse me, Miss Vivas, she went to trial before and won. One. And you were helping and working with that case. Yeah, yeah, five million, four point nine. But then, like right before Diane Multanovich was going to testify, one of your key witnesses, who's been an advocate of the Title IX situation at Fresno State, is an expert in it. What happened with her? Well, they settled her claim that, for a confidential saying. amount for a lot of money, and uh, so they paid her money to settle her lawsuit right before she got on the witness stand to right. testify against them. Correct. How did that come across? Well, um, uh, I, th that was kept out. Judge wouldn't let uh, only that the jury only knew that there was a resolution of her case, but he didn't know the amount. Well, but still, yeah, she, they know she, that she, she won. won. The judge told me afterwards. Judge that handled the case, and uh, uh, 
uh, he told me that he thought she was the best witness that he had seen in the whole trial. She came off credible, emotional, and 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 every you can't help but like Diane, and she did a really good job. So I think that that helped. That was because she had an inside person supporting you. Twenty five years she worked there. You had other coaches. Yeah, but but the money. I mean, nineteen point one million. That's a lot of money. If you said, let's say the full length of the contract was less than a million dollars. No, no, the contract, I got an economist to put out there, not only the value of the contract, that she was not going to be able to be a division one basketball coach. For the rest coach. of her career. Right. So, so the, the, ec the economic number was 5.1 wow. million. Okay. And then, so when I argued in the closing, I said that her non-economic was in the millions. I learned from my last trial that you told me that I didn't ask for enough money that that I was going to stay away from that. I figured 5.1 million. And then I'd say that the loss of a career, a basket, division one basketball coach was in the millions and it was up for them to determine it. But I wanted the 5.1 million in the economic. So I remember that day, uh, speaking with you on the phone, you had finished the final argument. I think you might have went to lunch or back to your office. And then you say, Oh, I got to go. The verdict's in. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's a that's one of my favorite stories. It's a kind of a made for TV that you don't get all the time. So they they actually went out the day before. They were out for an hour. Then the next day they come back and they're only got they're only it's like lunchtime. They've been only out four hours, and they call me up and they the the clerk tells me they have a question, and I said a question. So I get in the car. I take the client take the people that helped me with the trial. We're all down there. We're halfway down the freeway to the courthouse. I get another call from the clerk and the clerk says they got a verdict. And I said, Oh my gosh, I go 10 week trial. I said, we had probably 45 witnesses come testify thousands of documents. I had a three causation verdict form. There's no way. So I told her the client, I said, look, probably not going to be good. Just don't cry. Just we'll hold a little press conference and we'll be done with it. We go inside the courthouse, everybody's there, the other side's there, defense is there, everybody's got their head down, the courtroom's packed. And uh, the judge says, Well, we got a verdict. I'm going to bring the jury in. Bailiff, bring the jury in. Judge looks at me and the other lawyer and says, Do you want to know what the question was? I said, I do. And he says, the Question was, can we give more money in economic damages than the plaintiff asked for? And, and that's the answer. And, no? I, okay. and, they, and he said, well, he said, I didn't, he didn't, well, he didn't, didn't have a chance, he had to, chance to it because he got the verdict. That's so, a pretty good question. You're feeling pretty oh, good. Feeling you pretty, heard now, you're feeling pretty good. Feeling real good. In fact, people in the, my wife's in the back. She goes, what does that mean? I go, thumbs that up. Good. That means good. So I knew I was going to get at least 5 million. So, but it was, uh, it was one of those special moments in my career that, uh, that well, I, I mean, it was a hard fought case. Yeah. And I think one special element, and I'll bring it up here, is your former boss and partner was brought in to try the case against you, who's a fabulous lawyer, Mick Martirosian. Yeah. So you had left from the firm to start your own firm. No, Mick. Uh, what was that like? Well, Mick, uh, Mick mentored me, man. I mean, he brought me on. He was a great lawyer. He did a great job. But he, they brought him in the last month of the trial. The university had university lawyers. And, you know, uh, I think. The hay was in the barn. Yeah, well, and, and Mick was trying to settle it. Mick was trying to settle the case, and uh, the university was—I don't think—was listening to him. But uh, he did a—he did a pretty good job, considering that he came in the last thirty days. All right.
I want to talk about one other case and then some general stuff. But before I get to the case, let me ask you, what do you see as we approach this new decade, 2020, what do you foresee the changes that may occur in trial practice? Well, I, I see uh, in the future, I see things getting more expensive. Um, uh, it's going to be more costly to try cases, handle cases in the civil arena. And I think that my biggest concern is the inability of, of lawyers to get into a courtroom to try cases. Uh, it's harder and harder to try the cases because of just availability of judges, courtrooms, and the cost of litigating them. And I think as we get older, I see younger lawyers having less trial experience, which equates to, I think, uh, I don't want to say poor results, but not the results that we'd well, want to Well, not as experienced lawyers right. doing the cases. Yeah, and not being able to evaluate the cases properly. All right. Well, I want to ask you about one other case, which was one of the top verdicts in 2018, Ortiz versus uh, Chipotle. I, I yeah. remember talking to you about it yeah. when it was happening, but just tell us briefly, our listeners, about that. Yeah, case. that was uh, a case where a uh, uh, manager worked at Chipotle for 14 years and and uh, one day they accused her of stealing uh, $66 out of the safe. And they uh, fired her on, uh, basically after a three-week investigation. Um, she, uh, they said they had her on videotape stealing the money. She asked to see the video. They didn't show her the video. And she had a company car because uh, she had a manager of two or three stores. And as they were firing her, they got the keys and she's crying and she had worked for Chipotle 14 years. This gal worked at a high school at fast food and was making 78,000 a year. And as she's leaving, they take her car keys and she had to walk home. So she went to a pay phone and was crying and, and her husband came and picked her up in a, in a, the neighbor's car because he only had one car. And so um, I sued Chipotle saying, you know, you defamed her calling her a thief. And then you wrongfully terminated because she had carpal tunnel and she was missing a lot of work uh, because of that. Well, when I subpoenaed the, um, the file or their file, they couldn't produce the, the videotape, but they said they had four managers that all viewed the videotape and saw her stealing the money. So that's what the case was about. And Isn't I was that hearsay. Uh, yeah, I, I thought so. <laughs> I, mean, so, so I saw a video that showed it. Isn't yeah. that a, well, I, it's, it's that no words. Well, there was no word spoken. They said they saw a yellow envelope. So they could, they could talk about what they saw, I guess. And so the judge let it in. And there was an, they, we argued about it. And uh, so they brought all four managers in. But I cross-examined them. And they didn't hold up water. And the jury came back and uh, gave us a pretty big verdict. On it. Well, I think it was uh, in excess of how much? Ten million. It was well. The jury gave us eight million for the for the defamation. They gave us two two million for wage loss, six million for non-economic, including the defamation, and then we hit for punitives, and we settled the punitive damage portion for uh, uh, confidential agreement. Okay, so that worked out. Yeah. Right. So, for people that want to be trial lawyers that are in law school or young lawyers, what do you, what's your advice to them? Try to go to a firm or a place where you can try cases and don't worry about making money. I know it's hard. You're coming out of school, you wanna make money, but if, if in the long run, in the long run, 
you really need to go try cases and go to a firm that's going to let you try cases. If you had to do it over again, would you do it the same way you've done it? Uh, no, I would change one thing. I'd be, I'd be a plaintiff's attorney sooner. Yeah, but you're not following your advice because you talked about how great that experience at the DA was. And no, that was great that insurance defense firm, which I think that the route you went was be the perfect route that I would outline for someone, if they could, to be a, in a prosecutor or defense criminal, then an insurance defense firm, and then to the plaintiff. No, firm. I agree. I just shortened the time span. That's all. It's much quicker. It's much quicker. Get to get to the Brian Panish kind of money okay. quicker. <laughs> all right. With that, we're going to end it. It was great to have you here, Warren. Look forward to hearing you again. And right. thank, uh, you. thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. All right. In the courtroom, we rely on compelling evidence often rooted in the detail work of scientists. That's why I'm introducing Science of Justice. This podcast by Jury Analyst isn't just legal chatter. It's a deep dive into law and science using real science, real data, and real time. The team at Science of Justice stands for integrity. They break down complex scientific principles to serve those wronged or injured, making it accessible for lawyers and other justice seekers. So now, let's really up your game and embrace some real evidence. Say goodbye to following the herd and start practicing law based on facts. You got to check out now the Science of Justice podcast.